welcome to the Farcast, a show that for six years has been bringing you insiders from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We're glad you could join us this week. Now, on to our guest host, Jim Labenthal. Okay, folks, special treat today. You all know that I'm the equity guy, but I think if you look at your portfolios, you'll recognize there's more than equities in your portfolio. You probably actually have an asset allocation with other asset classes. And today I have the privilege of bringing actually my boss on the show. And he's sitting across from me. You can't see him right now. He's chuckling because we both know we're in an age where we have bosses because we want to have bosses. And if we don't like our boss, we're just not going to work anymore. Uh, but that's a long way of introing and hopefully a positive introduction to Ben Pace, who is the chief investment officer at Serity Partners. As I said, I have the privilege of working with him. I'm the equity guy. He's got fixed income guys. He's got private equity guys. He's got all sorts of uh, thoughtful people working and answering up to you, Ben, who have the privilege or actually the responsibility of putting together asset allocations and guiding the clients of the entire firm. Uh, ben, welcome. Happy to be here, Jim, with my favorite colleague. <laughs> I know. It's funny. We have a little lexicon in our in our firm. And to use the term boss is kind of an ugly yes. word. That's why Ben quickly corrected me to colleague. I got it, but you got it as well. Um, ben, give everybody who are meeting you for the first time a little bit of your background. Sure. I've been Chief Investment Officer at Serity Partners for nine years. Previous to that, I was Chief Investment Officer at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management. At the very end, uh, the head of their multi-asset group, which ran uh, balanced mutual funds, uh, products like that. Uh, prior to that, I was an equity portfolio manager at Deutsche Bank and Bankers Trust. So just a quick description you, of my You spit now. that bit out pretty quickly, <laughs> equity portfolio manager. <laughs> Those were the days. You, you take care of the equities now. I'm a, I'm a bigger thinker. I sometimes see you grinning uh, somewhat ruefully at me if there's a down day at the markets. But at the same time, I can see in your face and eyes. Boy, I'm glad I'm not here. I, I feel the pain. <laughs> All right. Um, a ton of experience there, Ben. Um, tell the listeners what your outlook, our outlook is on the markets, right? Now. I think, you know, when we were going at the beginning of the year, uh, we, we were kind of going against the the trend. We were contrarian in that this was the, the biggest anticipated recession in economic history that, that hasn't happened. And we didn't think it was going to happen going into the year. And we still don't think we're going to be in one uh, from an overall economic uh, scenario. So we were predicting only 1% GDP growth going into the year, and it's turned out to be much better than that. We've had two quarters already of two plus percent GDP growth. And if you really believe uh, people like the Atlanta Fed now GDP forecast, uh, it might be as high as 3%. I don't think it's going to be as high as they think it is now, but 3%. So much better economic growth than any of us anticipated. We actually raised our growth estimate for 2023 uh, to 2%. But more importantly, the 2024 growth estimate is going to come in at around 1.5%. So still positive growth, slower growth than we experienced, but still key to the overall outlook. The one issue around that is that's going to keep the Federal Reserve in the game maybe a little bit longer than we originally anticipated. Uh, and that's something that we have to be be careful about when we when we move forward into 2024. Ben, let's go there. 
Um, we just had the Fed give an announcement uh, this week in which they did not raise rates, but they sounded hawkish. Their summary of economic projections is higher for longer, higher for longer. Uh, the market's adjusting to it. It was down yesterday. As we're talking right now, the futures are down. There's a little heavy tone to the market. So here's the question in two parts. Uh, can the, is the Fed going to kill this? And then the second thing is, uh, where do, in particular, the equity markets go from here till year end? We're in a little bit of a heavy market, as I said. Yep. Is this a trend or a blip? I think the, the other uh, interesting thing that happened this year is that we were forecasting the markets to be up, but we were pretty mild in our forecast. We were thinking 7 to 9%. We've had to adjust our targets, as you know, because Jim does uh, does drive the, the adjustment of the targets uh, there uh, a couple times uh, this year. Uh, we, we think that we probably... Uh, this year and that it's going to be a little bit of a slog going into the rest of the year. But that should set us up uh, for a reasonably good 2024 uh, in equity markets. But the Fed can kill it if they continue to tighten. I don't think if they stop and stay at these levels, that's going to be a problem. The market will be able to absorb that well. But if they continue to tighten into the high fives uh, and, and drive overall interest rates up, I think that'll be too much pressure. Remember with the Fed, when they started tightening uh, last year, they went from zero uh, up to where they are now, which is that five and a quarter, five, 550 range uh, here. The first 300 basis points, you could argue, was just a lesser degree of pretty extreme ease. Once they got to about 300 basis points and above, now you started to be restrictive. So think about it, the Fed has only been restrictive for just the past few quarters. And, and, and these levels of rates with inflation where it is, the real rate is higher, no doubt. That puts a little bit more pressure, but it's a good place for them to stop. Uh, and we'd love to be able to see them having peaked here. If they stay at these levels because the economy continues to be strong, that's okay. That's a reasonably long-term average Fed funds rate. From your lips to Chairman Powell's ears. Um, let's talk about further out on the yield curve beyond the Fed funds rate. We've got the 10-year. Last I looked, I think it actually touched four and a half. It did, right, right? Right when we came into this this conference room to do the markets, this. The market is, to use a technical term, kind of puking on that. So, again, another two-part question. Uh, further out, what do you see happening to the yield curve? And then let's talk at Serity Partners about what we're doing, how we're expressing everything that you're talking about in our portfolios. The yield curve fascinates me, scares me a little bit, no, no doubt, because this concept of inverted yield curve, particularly as long as it's been inverted, which has been over a year now, uh, is usually a recessionary signal. Uh, in our uh, uh, in our meetings, you know, Jim, you, you do them, our client webinars, we offset the inverted yield curve with the fact that spreads on, on high-yield bonds have not gone up a lot. So if you're a high-yield bond buyer worried about a recession, wouldn't you, wouldn't you demand a little bit more in spread? So now the issue is who's right there? We're thinking high-yield guys are right because obviously we still think that the economy is going to grow. But then it comes back to, well, how's the yield curve uh, resolve itself because this is an unusual shape here. And we're thinking it's going to be a combination of the Fed being able to ultimately say mission accomplished on inflation coming down. We didn't talk about inflation yet, and we should. It's come down You're quite to go nicely. There right now. It's too important yeah. we'll, to omit. We'll, we'll come there because it's an important part of the answer to your question. Uh, the inflation rate has come down from nine plus percent in the summer of last year to where it is now on the headline, which is the mid threes. We always thought that last mile 
to the 2% target was going to be a bit of a slog. And it's not because goods prices. Goods prices have basically uh, come back down to almost zero from an inflation standpoint. It's service inflation, and we're a service economy, and that's namely wages. So we need wages to continue to come down. We think that progress is going to continue. In fact, we think it's going to continue over the next six weeks. One of the calls we have now is that the Fed is not going to uh, increase interest rates in November. It'll leave December open, but they won't. But they'll be able to start decreasing rates. Now, one of the upsets about yesterday uh, in the Fed meeting was that there was a thought they would be able to decrease the Fed funds right by about 100 basis points. Now it's about 50 basis points. But that, in combination with this continued economic growth, having longer-term yields move up, particularly around the, the belly of the curve, that, that 5 to the 12-year range, and we really key in on the 10, continuing to move up. So we hit the 450 target, which there was a lot of skepticism. You know, Jim, when we put that target out 12 months ago, I was like, how is it going to get to 450, uh, especially with, with the fear of recession? Well, here we are. Uh, so we're being a little more careful on curve positioning. But what we have done for the first time in years is we've eliminated the underweight that we had to fixed income securities. You just weren't getting paid enough uh, for the risk. Now, we thought the risk was that eventually rates were going to start going up, going up gradually, and it would lead to negative returns. It was painful because it happened in one year uh, last year. And it's and continued this year. It's continued this year. Yeah, for a while it was kind of flattening out, but then it's continued again. So another reason that, okay, you could you could increase the, the weighting towards fixed income. We took it out of cash. That might be counterintuitive because cash yields more right now than intermediate fixed income. We do think cash yields are coming down. You want to be ahead of that, but you don't want to be too long in your duration. So moving out from really short-term maturities and cash into that three to five-year range makes more sense than going out longer because we don't think that the interest rate increases at the intermediate duration and are totally over yet. Close to, but not totally over. So we added to fixed income. Really important note here, folks. This is very recently. We added to fixed income. The interest rates, the yields are what they are. And frankly, they're positive real yields. So people are increasing their purchasing power. The other sort of two-step here is we reduced our overweight to equities, which we had had on for quite some time. Now, folks, I think this is this is pretty intriguing to me. And if, if you've watched the CNBC halftime report, you've noticed in the last six weeks on a portfolio level, we've been selling some securities, raising a little bit of cash. I mean, that's commensurate with what we've done at the big picture asset allocation level. So here comes now we're going to show a little bit, Ben, of how we, you know, make the sausage, which right. can be a little bit ugly. Uh, you, sure you want to go there? Yeah, <laughs> well, no, it's a, it's a conversation that I was going to have with you at some point in time. But as we get through September and September's living up to its billing, there's always reasons why, right? So the Fed's doing what it's doing. Interest rates are doing what it's doing. UAW strike, government shutdown, whatever. There's always reasons. But as we get through this September, I look at today's jobless report. I don't know if you had a chance to look. I did. I saw it. Extraordinary report. Yep. I mean, the you just, might want to just update that to 200,000. It came down to uh, jobless claims. Continuing claims are lower. Uh, everybody who's calling for that to increase have been wrong so far. So this is still a reasonably tight labor market. So in the Navy, keep it simple, sailor. Or keep, keep it simple, stupid. KISS is the acronym. The labor market's strong. I think that trumps everything else. 
we get through September, if the market continues to come down the way, the equity market continues to come down the way it looks like, maybe we raise our, our target. We're kind of kind of at our target right now for year end, yeah. around 4,300 on the S&P 500. Maybe we raise our target. Folks, this is how the yes. sausage gets made. Ben and, 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 and I the good thing to, to Jim's credit is we didn't raise our target when we went above it because we were a little nervous about, coming a mile <laughs> about this, this happening from the standpoint of the labor market staying too tight, interest rates staying too high. I think what you've had uh, for years, uh, the acronym we were all throwing around was TINA, uh, T-I-N-A. With rates so low, there is no alternative to equities. Dividend yielding stocks were doing better than than short term treasuries were. Cash was. That's no longer the case, right? The new the new uh, uh, acronym is Tara. There is a reasonable alternative, right? And so what you're starting to see is is uh, people recognizing that. And I always say that stocks and bonds compete for affection in people's portfolios, right? Uh, uh, when you're only making 0% in cash or 1.5% in 10-year bonds like you were just two years ago, you weren't real affectionate towards them. You went towards stocks. Now, it's it's becoming a little bit more neutral. And so I think people are, for the first time in a long time, being able to get both nominal and real returns with this inflation rate coming down in intermediate duration securities for the first time in a long time. So that's a bit of a headwind. But the thing that was interesting about the stock market this year is that the advance that we saw, the 15% rise that we've seen so far this year, has been all valuation-led. Uh, you know, Jim, uh, earnings have been down on a year-over-year basis. Fourth quarter of last year, first quarter of this year, second quarter of this year, we need earnings to start to move. And one good thing about that earnings decline it was met with revenue increases. So it was a little bit of a margin deterioration, which we don't think is gonna last forever, especially with, with raw materials prices coming down, unit labor costs we do think are gonna come down. That earnings uh, uh, rebound is something to really look forward to that we think is going to be the thing that allows us to raise our, our price targets as we move into 2024. These are these are really good points. Folks, uh, Ben and I and the rest of the team are going to have some long discussions about this. Uh, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. So let's just say that let's just say that right now the estimates for next year are correct around 248 for S&P 500 earnings for the ease of math. Let's call it 250 and 18 times multiple. This is an honest inquiry here. 18 times multiple would put a 4500 level on the S&P 500. Is that, and this is both rhetorical and literal, is that a reasonable year-end level and multiple to look forward to on the S&P 500? Would 18 times forward? This is a good question yeah. in a 5% interest rate world. That, that, that's the interesting thing. If it's a 5% interest rate world, like the basic calculation there is just do uh, one over the 10-year interest rate. So one over 0 0.05, if that's where we get, is 20 times. That means the government bond is 20 times its coupon. Now, the government bond, of course, doesn't increase its coupon. It's fixed. Stocks do increase their dividends, but also the, the government bond doesn't have any risk of principal. You're going to get your money back eventually. At least we think so. Uh, but we will uh, there. So we've used that calculation uh, 20 times compared to the 18 times, you got to have some kind of risk premium for the risk there. It probably is about fairly valued is the way we look at it, but not undervalued. When rates were down around four, not very long ago, that calculation was 25 times. That made it look like equities might have been reasonably cheap 
Not so much anymore. That's why we need the earnings growth rate to pick up because that's the other thing that drives price earnings ratios higher, not just the level of interest rates. I think we're going to leave it there, Ben. Folks, I think you uh, get a little bit of insight into how my brain works because I get the privilege of working with Ben and asking these questions all the time and having these discussions. There's a lot of robust discussions going on in our shop right now about what to do with interest rates, what to do with equities, what to do with cash. And I'll be keeping you posted, not just on the forecast, but on CNBC. Just know that Ben Pace is in my ear as I, as I tell you what I think. Nice speaking with everyone today. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Michael Farr and The Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Joining us on this week's podcast, please share us with friends and colleagues. And now, back to your special guest host, Jim Labenthal. Folks, it's another week. There's another round of shenanigans in Washington, D.C. We need our buddy. We need our, our guy with the insight, Dan Mahaffey, and Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of Presidency and, and Congress. And uh, Dan, welcome back. Uh, you know, you know, we love having you on, and and I'm not kidding. We we need your insight. Well, thank you, Jim. Good morning, and always great to be to be speaking with you as well. Yeah, it's it's a week. Um, you know, yeah, it's been a heck of a week, and it's only Wednesday, so that 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 tells you where we're at in Washington. Let me set this up this way. I think there's one topic that we've got to talk about, which is the pending, perhaps government shutdown. And and I, for once, have just a, a, a lovely vantage point because as an investor, right now, it doesn't really matter to me. Now, that may be provocative, but I don't think so. You know, until this really happens, until it becomes long in the tooth, the shutdown that is, and perhaps has implications for uh, the national debt rating, until all of that happens, which is way downstream, I can kind of like watch this this slow motion car wreck without having it affect me. But it does matter from a politics point of view. It matters from your perspective. So share with us, please, how you're looking at the current situation in Washington and this possible shutdown. Sure. Thanks, Jim. It is one, I'll say, first and foremost, we are seeing this as a very likely government shutdown. The question now is, what type of shutdown is it and how do we get out of it? Length, duration, uh, things of that nature. We're now here at only 11 days to go. 
and what you have basically is no time for any of those end of rounds you hear about discharge petitions, bipartisan agreements, uh, everything else you find in your West Wing scripts that you keep under your uh, pillow at night. Those are going to take time. And I don't think you're going to see that stop a shutdown. They could very well end a shutdown, though. So you, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, but then when we ask what type of shutdown is this, there's different flavors to these. Is it the old weekend shutdown where, okay, some signs go up at national parks over the weekend, but by Monday, cooler heads prevailed and a package gets put to the floor? I think you could see that. But what you'll see in the interim is a lot of those sort of performative measures or things uh you know frankly one strategy i think you'll see is they're going to basically give give the conservative hardliners everything they want throw that in a bill basically make for lack of a better term harry get the button ready sandwich send that to the senate and guess what senators are very fancy people and they are not going to take a bite of that sandwich and so that's going to go back to them and say look you tried that the senate it's not going anywhere what do we do now? So I think it gets into bigger picture. Is this a long shutdown? Do we get in, you know, does this go past uh, Columbus indigenous holiday? Uh, or do you have this now uh, something that again is more political and performative because you again, think of those deadlines of at the end of the year, you have those spending caps automatically kick in. And as you preface to the broader question of rating agencies, the outside economic impact, uh, you know, do these rating agencies look at us and say that they won't even honor a deal that they've written anymore? And, and you know, if we can get into the environment up there, Jim, there people are putting copies of a McCarthy discharge petition, basically kick out McCarthy legislation. Copies of that are being put in the restrooms in the Capitol <laughs> for people to take it and to take and, and look at. So that gives you an idea of the the, the tenor there as they're trying to resolve this, but I think ultimately heading towards some kind of shutdown. Um, Dan, first off, I love the reference to West Wing. Uh, side note, barely tangential, but bear with me for a second. I was watching the movie Chris Crimson Tide the other day. Remember that one? Gene Hackman is a ballistic missile submarine captain. Denzel Washington is his XO. It's a fabulous movie. However, as a, for as a former submariner, I can attest that's not how decisions were made on the submarine. And it... <laughs> You know, it wasn't like you had the captain running around with a cigar and his little dog taking a leak on the missile tubes. But nonetheless, great drama, fab, fabulous movie. Okay, there's a lot in what you just said. I will say this. I, I did mention that for an investor, it's kind of like, all right, grab your, your bucket of popcorn and watch what goes on. And I don't mean to make light of it. I mean, you know, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy is a real person. And frankly, I think he's doing a good job. He's in, he's in an impossible situation. But um, you know, one of the things that you alluded to is it seems like decorum has has gone out the window in, in both houses, both houses. Um, I, I wince when I find myself agreeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene about the demise of the uh, dress code uh, uh, in the Senate. I don't want to agree with her on anything, but at here, you know, she has a point. Um, are we on a so look, we've had many government shutdowns in our lifetimes, many. And, you know, much like impeachment, it's just becoming something that kind of people toss over their shoulder and it happens. Mm -hmm. Are we on the way down this slippery slope in terms of decorum, yeah. in terms of procedure? Yeah. Is there is there a recovery from where we're headed? Jim, I think that's, that's a very good point. I, I want to delineate out, we'll separate two arguments. There's one, the 
Washington has gone downhill ever since they stopped uh, requiring ties at the prime rib on K Street. So that's <laughs> that's one sense of decorum, and you can look at it that way. And yes, that that's changed the sense of of this town. The broader issue is what I call the WWEization of our politics. This is more professional wrestling than governing. And while there are a lot of actually, you know, good people in this town, we 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 joke about Congress's approval rating and where it stands next to Ebola and invasive medical tests and things <laughs> like that. But there are some people who come here to roll up their sleeves and do work and get the job done for their constituents. A lot of them, though, are drowned out by these actors, these professional wrestlers, basically, who have gone into politics type figures who who really suck up the oxygen because that's where the media attention goes, uh, as well as the the outrage. And then inevitably the dollars follow. All right. I will stop clutching my pearls. Thank you very much. Um, let's bring this shutdown to a, a point where it actually could have an impact on the markets and on the economy. And that has to do, in my opinion, with the ratings agencies. Uh, you know, it was 2011. S&P downgraded, took away the AAA rating. Uh, of the, of the uh, Treasury market. A couple of months ago, Fitch did the same thing. Now everybody's got eyes on Moody's. And, um, you know, will they look at this procedure or these lack of procedures uh, that are going on in Washington and say, this is not the way a AAA yeah. uh, underwriter works? Now, I want I want to just put one, one point before you respond. As an investor, what I have said to clients for, is that for 40 years, if you worried about the debt or the deficit, if you let those items impact your investment stance, you've missed out on making a lot of money. For 40 years, that's been true. However, you know, we are reaching the point where we might lose from all three credit rating agencies, AAA rating, and we're seeing interest rates go up at a time that the debt level is pretty astronomical. At some point, at some point, these things will matter, even if they haven't for 40 years. I know I'm asking you to step a little bit into my world, but I know you're comfortable doing it. Put your feet in both the political and the economical camp and, and tell me what you think. Right. Well, in the political camp, the thing is that other than a few stalwarts, the, the fiscal certitude and fiscal responsibility argument has gone past the graveyard. Everyone is willing to spend for their own priorities. Uh, they all throw rocks from glass houses when it comes to fiscal probity. And uh, one side says they'll balance the budget with tax cuts. The other says that they'll balance the budget by spending more. It just the the ad, the math never adds up for either side. <laughs> so you you have that uh, there, and I think what investors need to look at in the longer run is one, you have an interest rate environment changing. And two, you no longer have a world looking to the dollar as much as the tool they want for their financial transactions. And I think what policymakers in Washington are looking at more and, and starting to get aware of is how the, you know, will the world continue to finance our debts and continue to have that dollar demand that makes this uh, profligate policymaking possible. And that's where I think the 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 longer term question is on debt and deficits. But um, you know, as you say to your your clients, none of the the piper hasn't come asking to be paid yet. So that's the that's the big question, and that's I think where we see. And you know, the question is when we hit those years, those years in the chart that were always farther off, where that invest the interest payments take up a bigger and bigger and bigger chunk of our our spending. Those years are getting closer. 
Uh, and that's what I don't think uh, is the is the looming crisis that we're, neither party is talking about in all of this. Uh, as I say, this this professional wrestling type mentality. I did not expect a different answer from you, Dan. Nonetheless, I am disappointed that there isn't a sense of alarm. Like, and I, and I get it. You're absolutely right. It's about tax cuts and spending more. Absolutely, that's until their you know their their feet are burning from the fire underneath their feet. Uh, there's just not going to be attention spent uh, spent on it. Okay, all right. Sorry, as I said, I did not expect a different answer from you. Now, while all this is going on, we got, you know, we got real policies to debate here. And I can't I can't let you go without doing the international picture again today. So <laughs> we had uh, President Zelensky in New York City at the U.N. Um, saying some pretty powerful things to me anyway. I, it makes abundant sense. You know, first first Russia comes for Ukraine. Who's next after that? Um did the did the has the UN proceedings this week had any impact? Does it uh, you know take away any of the of the breath uh, or the air, uh, the oxygen in Washington, or is it just yeah that's going on two hundred miles mm -hmm. up to the north? Well, look, there's a certain element of uh, it's it's one of those funny things like uh, you have the UN General Assembly, you have things like the Aspen Summit during the summer where everyone in Washington leaves Washington to go to another place to meet with the same people they know in Washington. It's a fascinating <laughs> migratory environment. And and UNGA is, is one of those. I think it has been overshadowed somewhat by both the, uh, you know, there's so, sort of a summit fatigue coming after the G20, a lot of progress with G7, Quad and others. You know, it was it was important that Biden was there at a time when some of the other world leaders were were skipping this one uh but actually for me it just showed me that the un is sadly or perhaps by some predicted uh just moving further and further towards irrelevance in a world that is being being split apart in these ways that um you know that you're you're hamstrung by the fact that china and russia are permanent members of the security council so you can't really move on any of these things it's it's overwhelmed by its bureaucracy in many ways look there's good work done by unicef food program others let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater of course but when it comes to the major geopolitical issues and look you can agree that we need to work on climate and other things like that the the un is just not there when you consider things now like the the way the g20 BRICS, all these other smaller groups are moving around the world Got it. Good analysis. Dan, before we stop for today, what else is on your mind? What what have I not asked you that's pressing? So I think the big thing that's pressing is we're seeing a lot more rhetoric in the U.S. And a, this was a big deal in Washington. I don't know how much it was covered uh, outside the Beltway. This new Huawei phone and the Chinese moving ahead with a with a seven nanometer chip, something that is it's asking a lot of questions about what our in, uh, export controls are. There's going to be a lot more discussion about outbound investment review. Look, the administration started that. This has created a lot of concern in Washington about China closing that technological gap. But we still have to remember a lot of that interdependence between us and the Chinese market for our innovators as well, the Apples, the Qualcomms, those other big players. So I'm interested to see, one, does our policy response look? It's the one thing we can get everyone to agree on is anti-China. Do we do we over-respond in some ways to this, uh, this new phone? And then I'm asking the other question, look, it's one thing to make a, a prototype, and you, you can hold two thoughts in your head. One, 
Don't underestimate the Chinese ability to innovate, of course, but two, always remember that command economies will struggle to deliver quality goods at scale. And that's gonna be the big question for this economy and this phone going forward. It's, it's one to make a few of these in a lab, can you make these chips at scale and can you really deliver them like the, the other companies around the world have? And on that note, Dan, the early indications are that the yield of this Chinese seven nanometer chip manufacturing is 20%, meaning for every chip they produce, uh, uh, four out of five of them are no good. One out of five is good. You know, in, in the West, that's closer to like 90%. So your, your point is well made there. Um uh, and and of course, you know, this ties in. This is very interesting that uh, Huawei introduced that phone a few weeks ago with the seven nanometer chip and immediately thereafter started banning iPhones in various government uses. It's hard to de-link those two actions, in my opinion. Certainly. Um, Certainly. And I, they, they, they planned those announcements at the at the same time. You, you of know course that. they did. Of course they did. All right, Dan, thank you. Thank you for your time today. As always, folks, I hope you got a lot. I know I did out of Dan. He is the Senior Vice President and Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Dan, thank you very much for joining us as always. Thanks, Jim. Great talking to you. That's a wrap for this episode of the Farcast and a wrap for our sixth season. Thanks for being with us this week and every week. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you. Thanks to our guest host, Jim Labenthal, and our guests, Dan Mahaffey and Ben Pace. The podcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and comes to you weekly on all major podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Please share us with friends and colleagues. We love hearing from you every week. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week on The Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.